Hello and welcome. I'm Kelly Fitzpatrick with Redmonk. This is The Docs Are In, where we sometimes talk about documentation and techcom and sometimes talk to folks with doctorates and sometimes both. This is the Taylor Swift episode. And you heard right, Taylor Swift episode, not Swift the language or Jonathan Swift, the Gulliver's Travels author or anything like that. And with me today is Dr. Casey Elaine Wilson. Casey, can you please tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am an assistant professor at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina. Um, I teach a lot of different things uh, that we'll talk about as this goes on. Um, you know, business communication, technical communication, which is we'll get into is how we kind of know each other, but also um, a lot of composition and first year writing, um, literature courses, various things. Um, and uh, my kind of Academic research background is primarily in young adult and children's literature um, and digital media and popular culture, which is kind of where we get into today's Taylor Swift episode. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And uh, you alluded to this a bit before, but as with my current Redmond colleague, Dr. Kate Holterhoff, you and I met when we were both doing postdoctoral, fellow, uh, postdoctoral fellowships at Georgia Tech, where in year one, we were both teaching in the CS Techcom kind of junior design course series, which like I've written about a lot. And we'll put some links to that in the show notes for those of you who really, really want to know about it. Um, however, right. in addition, like in addition to teaching courses on like techcom and business and all the other stuff you do, like as you, you noted, you have really super interesting background, both like academically and creatively. Um, mm -hmm. Can you speak a bit about how your areas of interest got you to a place where you could just you could just walk up and be like, I'm going to teach a university course on Taylor Swift? Yeah, so um, I am a little bit of a person who kind of academically has always done a little bit of everything. I'm I'm the jack of all trades in in most departments that I'm that I have been in um because I I like a little bit of everything. I I I hop around. I have the the hyper focuses that take me place to place. Um and so so yeah, I uh my primary area like I said is is in children's and young adult literature and digital media and pop culture, which sound like a big range of things. It is um but I often really like seeing how they all mold together. What are what's happening with uh, new? Uh, you know, used to be new media. Now I've updated it to digital media because it's not so new anymore. Uh, it, is, it is not so new anymore. That is correct. <laughs> and uh, you know, and and how youth culture and especially teenage culture is is particularly interesting. You know, I, I do some writing on the side, so there's all all this stuff that that that, that I am interested in. And um, along with that, you know, I am someone who I have been aware of and known about and listened to Taylor Swift from the very beginning. Um, from, you know, when she dropped Tim McGraw as that first single, I have, you know, been kind of following her career at different levels of enthusiasm um, over the years because she's had a long career and that waxes and wanes as with anything. Um, and so, yeah, here at Francis Marion, we have a, uh, version of our introduction to literature course that is themed where professors can pitch different topics. And um, at one of the faculty meetings, uh, one of my colleagues who collects these themes said, you know, send us weird stuff. And I was like, you're going to regret that. And I sent him a pitch. Or not. Or they're not going to regret it at all. Um, but yeah, I sent a, a pitch for a class called Taylor Swift as Text. Um, and so uh, that went through the committee process and got approved. And I've taught it, I think, twice as 
that version of the class, um, and I am teaching it again this summer in a slightly different context. And my my understanding is that the like the section of the class this summer, you were explicitly requested to teach it. So it's like by yeah, request you are teaching this. Yeah, it was um, brought to me. Um, it's a a class that were uh, that has been put in place to try and reach students who need to meet certain criteria by fall. Um, and it was something that uh, the people who were putting it together thought that the Taylor Swift class could be a fun class for them to potentially take. Um, and so I said, yeah, because why not? Because wh- why would you not want to teach your 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 Taylor Swift as text class exactly. during the same during the same season when you are actually going to go see her eras tour yes because that is, that did overlap i went to see the eras tour in the middle of teaching this class so this summer so which is i think i think great um so you, you've spoken a little bit about how like previous sections of the class have been a little different than what you're doing now can you you tell us about either one like what, what you have done with the course what you're doing with it now it's largely pretty similar, even this version that's you know set up a little bit differently. Um, so the way I've designed it, and there are other Taylor Swift classes out there. Um, there are other people who teach them and teach them from different perspectives and different angles. Because I was coming at this from a um, introduction to literature perspective, the way that I have set up this class is that I am doing it through the lens of the references that Taylor Swift makes in her music to literature, because there's a lot of them. Um, Taylor Swift in, has, you know, from pretty early on, not necessarily a ton on her first couple albums, but like pretty early on, she starts making references to pop culture and other artists. Like her first single is about Tim McGraw, right? So she's always had this kind of intertextual intertextuality to it. But um, she also very specifically has. Uh, referenced a lot of literature and a lot of kind of classical canonical literature. She has references multiple times. She references the great Gatsby. Um, She references Romeo and Juliet in one of her first map singles, love story. That's the one that like pops up. And I'm like, this is the one that I, when you, when you said that talking about just kind of like literary references, I'm like, Oh, you have Shakespeare. Yeah. um, She references Shakespeare. Um, That song and another song, New Romantics, also both reference um, Scarlet Letter. Um, There's uh, references to Emily Dickinson and Robert Frost. And she has a song called The Lakes about the lake poets, which is, uh, you know, a a group of poets who helped to establish the whole romantic movement, which really changed literature and the world (laughs) and our culture and, and the Western society in a lot of ways. Um, and so what we do in the class is we, uh, read the texts that she references, um, and then we study them, uh, you know, for their own merit and for their own sake. Um, but then we also put them in conversation with why are these the texts she is referencing? Why are these the, um, stories that are speaking to her and that she wants to use and transform in her own music in that way? Yeah. And, um, one of the, one of the kind of fun facts I learned while I was, I was studying up on this because I am, I am not a Taylor Swift expert, like mm-hmm. by, by any means, um, was her, her album reputation, like, and this mm-hmm. is from a Wikipedia article. So like, it could be completely wrong. Like it didn't do like Listen, hardcore research. On the, this. the Swifties aren't going to allow misinformation to stand on Wikipedia for long. So I think you're probably okay. That is good. But the thing that really excited me was, um, Game of Thrones helped inspire that that entire album and specifically like Arya Stark, like that character 
um, inspiring some of the some of the songs on there. And I was like, okay, this is welcome to my world. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a crossover there. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because she does so much um with the source materials that she chooses. Like sometimes it is just a very like simple reference, right? The you were Romeo, I was a scarlet letter, right? Um in, in Love Story is something that she got critiqued a lot for at the start when when that came out. People were like, Romeo and Juliet isn't a love story. Like that's, you know, it ends with both of them dying. And yes, it does. But also she's not the only one in our culture that has forgotten about the ending of that. Like Romeo and Juliet are constantly talked about as a paragon of love and romance. Um, And that's something that like I have my students kind of grapple with is like, what does it mean that we can tell focus on their love story and not their tragic deaths at the end? Um, but you know, even aside from that, you know, she has um, you know, some of her uses of the Great Gatsby more recently um on uh the album Evermore and the song Happiness. Um she it's this really lovely song kind of about recognizing when a relationship is ending and that you can remember that there were good things about the relationship and that it still had to end. And also that in the future, you will be happy again. Right. And so this, this kind of whole refrain of all of these pieces um, and there's this kind of echo of the, you know, what you want from me now is the green light of forgiveness, which is a reference to this green light that appears as a recurring motif in the great Gatsby. Um, but it's such an interesting kind of twist on it because it's a much more for Gatsby, it was such a sign of obsession. And this is a sign of growth and change, which is a really interesting way to kind of spin that idea. Um, and in the same song, she references Daisy's very famous, you know, I, I'll, I want for my daughters to be a beautiful little fool. Um, and in the song, there's a moment where the narrator kind of says that whoever this ex-lover ends up with next, she hopes she'll be a beautiful fool um, who takes my spot next to you. And then immediately, though, brings it back. No, I didn't mean that. You know, in this idea of, nope, I'm trying to be better than that. That's not what I want, right? Which is a kind of growth that Daisy never has in the book, right? For for Daisy, that's all she is, is the, you know, and all she wants is, is kind of in that space. Um, and so it's really interesting when you get into some of the nuances of those things, of how she's using them. Um, and I don't always get to even get into that level of nuance with my students, but it's really fun to see those kind of different levels of, of reference in her work. And it's not just Taylor Swift as, as text, but all of the, as you said, intertextual references, yeah. which is a word we, we don't use in the tech the tech industry that often, but it's, a, it's really great from like literary study, studies. Like right. Like, just just, 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 just the idea that like even, and I think that that's something um, that I find so interesting about, because I've been thinking about it a lot in the context of talking to you about it on this series, right? Um, is that idea of, you know, intertextuality, as you say, is not necessarily something that we think about in tech circles of, you know, how are all these references happening to one another, but they still like that, that act of relying on each other and what other people have said and read and done and built beforehand to create what you're creating is, is very much there. Right. And so the act is present, even if the, the larger conversation is maybe not using those same words. Very much. And even, even if you wanted to go, like, you could make the argument that some of the best technical documentation we yeah. see is intertextual and bringing all these different formats so like like the taylor swift episode definitely belongs in this <laughs> series is, is where I'll, I'll leave it with um so i alluded to this a bit before but so this summer is 2023 there's yeah. been a lot of buzz around taylor swift and the eras tour yeah. yes uh, 
as an aunt to multiple nieces who loved Taylor Swift, one of which put together an entire comprehensive slideshow to educate our family about Taylor Swift. Very good. I have to say, I I was telling Kelly before this that my my slideshow that I put together for my students is not nearly as detailed and comprehensive as the one her niece made. Yeah, and she's in high school. So um, I I hope she doesn't become an academic. I hope she finds (laughs) some other other thing to do because academia has its own own kind of drugs. I'm like... You, you, you could do this for a living like yeah. already got, right now. Got some potential in there for sure. Yeah. Um, but but I, of course, was attempted or like recruited to help attempt get tickets for the tour. So I, I, I witnessed like firsthand the experience of dealing with some of the technical issues that folks ran into where things were just falling down, queues were falling down. And one of the things that's really fascinating is I have heard stories of of Swifties. That's that's Taylor Swift fans, right? I have that right. That is the term. Okay. So I've heard stories of Swifties actually reading through like stack traces and error messages that they, oh, they, yeah. they put in like to figure out what technologies are involved. And we will not name names on this show. Um, like, oh, oh my goodness. Um, you managed to get tickets. Like I failed. Someone else in my family managed to come through with tickets. But like you managed to get tickets. You managed to get through that process. You went to a show. What, what was what was the experience like? Has that changed how you teach? Were your students jealous? Like, how, where does that fit into, yeah. into Taylor Swift's text? So it's there's a lot of things to it. Um, so the thing that's really funny is that um, so I'm in South Carolina. Uh, Swift did not put on a show less than a four hour drive away. The closest one was Atlanta. Um, and so I ended up when I was looking for tickets, I decided I was going to look for tickets in Detroit because that's where I have a friend who is also a big Taylor Swift fan. Um, but I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do it because again, I teach and tickets tend to go on sale at 10 AM local time kind of situation. Um, but what ended up happening was through sheer coincidence and happenstance, I did not plan for this in any way. The day that the tickets went on sale was the day I was teaching the Taylor Swift test class during the class period, the class period starts at 9.55, the tickets went on sale at 10, while I was already scheduled to uh, screen them the Hunger Games. Um, And so it felt honestly pedagogically inappropriate to not try and get tickets as they were watching the Hunger Games. Um, so I sat there and I sat in my queue and I was in that queue for like five hours. Um, it was, I was home off of, off campus at home, done teaching for the day before I finally got my tickets. Um, and it, I have always said that it was kind of, because I did, I wasn't like, I have to get tickets. I feel like that's part of what made it possible for me to get tickets. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so when it was happening, there was a lot of, um, uh, conversation um as you said people were yeah like looking in the, into the code trying to figure out like they were saying like if you open up the page inspector and you go to here you can see exactly how many people are in front of you in the queue and all of this different stuff um and that was spreading through a really interesting network of largely for me tiktok um tiktok creators who were kind of making these videos and sharing and you know spreading this information um and that's part of a larger Trend isn't even necessarily the right word. Focus or obsession, let's say, of of Taylor Swift fans, which is that she has always kind of left these like little Easter eggs and clues and things for fans to decode. And you know, when she was younger, it was a lot of like the 
liner notes for her CDs, um, if we remember those, both of those things, uh, would sometimes have in the lyrics or in the notes, it'd have like random capital letters. And if you put them together, it would spell a secret message. Um, and that has since spiraled into um, people literally tracking specifically what colors her each of her nails are painted on each show of the tour to see if there are any changes and if those changes might have any secret meaning. Um, and that's the like pretty restrained version of some of the things that they they study and figure out and try and figure out. There's a lot of like numerology and can we make things add up to 13 because that's her favorite number and all of this stuff. Um, I, I, I knew that from the slideshow. Yes, very important information. It's the day she was born, December 13th. So it's favorite number. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's really interesting because there was already this... Um, tendency of Taylor Swift fans to really get into the minutiae and the details and the hidden meanings and the things that you can't see on the surface. And then all it did was shift about three degrees when the that came out to be, well, let's get into the code because it's the same thing. It's the same obsessiveness. It's the same attention to detail and uh, kind of making connections. It's just in a slightly different direction. Um, so yeah, that was definitely part of it. Um, you know, the, the show itself and the tour was, you know, great. It was long. She puts on a really long show. You know, she plays for three hours and 15 minutes or so, um, which is a lot. Um, there were a lot of people there. Uh, they, uh, one of the things that happened is fans started making friendship bracelets that they would trade with each other before a show, which was really fun. Um, and so there's like a lot of stuff there, but it was really interesting because I'm, you know, I was attending very much kind of from a dual perspective, right? I was there as a fan, but I'm also there as someone with this kind of professional interest in in all of this. Um, and to your point, your question about uh, if students were jealous, yeah, there were definitely some students who are who were like really pulling for me to get tickets. Um, students who had been really jealous when they found out I got tickets, different things like that. Um, but what's really interesting is actually that the class is not typically full of big Taylor Swift fans. Um, mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of people, there are, you know, decent, usually a, a couple that are big fans. There are a few that know some of her music. And then they're the ones who either don't know her music at all or didn't even know that this was class about Taylor Swift when they signed up for it. Um, they're like, when do we read Gulliver's Travels? Like, when is it happening? <laughs> um, and so it ends up being a really um, kind of fun balance of, different levels of interest, different levels of engagement. Um, I don't know if I fully answered all of your questions in there, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's a really, it was kind of fascinating because every semester that I've taught this class so far, because she is such an active producer, so it's so prolific in producing things, there has been something significant happening in each semester. Um, so the first time I saw it, it was the, uh, or taught it, it was the re-release of her album Red was happening during that time um, with the drop of um, the 10 minute version of All Too Well. Um, and then there's uh, there was Midnight's and the tour release when I taught it the second time. And then this semester, it's of course the actual tour itself. And so it's been really fun to kind of always have something to point to um, that's developing or changing as it's happening. Yeah, and you and I talked a bit about this before we started filming, but the re-release of albums with Taylor Swift is like it, talk about intellectual property yeah and, and things that are licensed um can you just explain that briefly for folks yeah. out there who do not already know it 
No, absolutely. No, this is actually one of the most interesting things that Taylor Swift has been doing recently because it's interesting both like musically and as a fan, but it's also really interesting, as you say, from this like business and intellectual property perspective. Um, so when Taylor Swift started out as an artist, she was a teenager and she signed with um, Big Machine Records, um, which was a new record label out of Nashville. Um, and she became you will be shocked to learn their anchor artist. Um, there are estimates that I've seen that upwards of 80% of their revenue and profits came because of Taylor Swift um, by the time, you know, that, and that was with Big Machine being a fairly successful label and having a lot of other very successful artists on it. Um, but when she signed that contract, part of the contract was that she would have, um, was that Big Machine would own the masters. Um, in music, um, there's kind of, two primary forms of ownership rights. There are publishing rights and master's rights. Um, publishing rights are kind of the rights to the song, and those are usually held by the songwriters. Mm -hmm. um, Taylor Swift is the primary songwriter on basically all of her songs that she's recorded, um, and other than like a couple covers here and there. Uh, and so she's always had the publishing rights, uh, which means she can perform them when she likes and um, all of that. What she doesn't have is the masters. Um, and so for the first six albums, which was the length of that contract was for six albums, um, Big Machine owns the right to the recording itself. Um, and so uh, when it comes to things like um, licensing or, you know, being played on the radio for what extent that still happens or, you know, you know streaming, right, all of these different things, um, Big Machine was getting kind of that, had control over that portion of it. Um, but what's happened is since she signed with a new label, she now owns the masters for all of the albums she's released since then. So she's released a number of albums since then. Um, and that's all well and good. But the sticking point came when the original owner of Big Machine Records sold um, the catalog, including Swiss music, to a venture capitalist group um, who is that is owned or you know has a, a major stake in it, let's say, I don't want to necessarily overspeak for, for the situation, um, by a person that Swift is not a fan of. Um, she does not like this person. She has never worked well with him, does not um, want him to own her music. Um, to hear Swift tell it, there has never been a necessarily a fair option presented to her to buy back her own music. Um, and so what she has done instead is she has set on out on a project of re-recording those first six albums um, so that she can re-release them and essentially make the original versions worthless. Uh, she records them very closely to what they were at the time, um, very minor changes um, that, you know, casual fans would not be able to pick up the difference at all. I would um, not, I would not know the difference. No, absolutely. Um, you know, only the people who have memorized every single inflection on every single note really will notice most of the time. Um, but even those fans are mostly on board with this idea because they want Taylor to have the ownership of her music. Um, and so what's ended up happening is um, she has started re-releasing those albums. She's uh, re-released her second album, Fearless. Um, and then she re-released Red. Um, and then this, in just a couple weeks, on July 7th, 2023, she's going to re-release Speak Now. Um, and each time she does that, she also releases them with additional songs. So it's the re-recorded version of the original album, as well as songs that were potentially going to be on that album when it was first recorded, um, but that 
you know, especially at the time, things like technology limitations were a big part. Like there's a reason that most albums during the rise of CDs were 10 to 13 songs long. And it's because that, because that's what can fit on a CD. Um, and so a lot of songs that maybe would have made the album if that was not the uh, limitation, um, she is re-releasing it along with that. So that even for the fans who already have the original versions, there is a motivation to want these newer versions as well. Um, and it has worked remarkably well. Um, this is the kind of project that a less dedicated and an engaged fan base might kind of write it off. Um, but she has had remarkable success with her fans fully embracing this. Um, and the original versions of the albums, I've seen people make really cool trackers of like the play counts of these different albums and the way that as soon as the re-release comes out, the original one just disappears. It's genuinely kind of fascinating to watch. So the, the data tracking element of being a, being a yeah. safety. Oh, it's that's, that's an intense part of it too. They, they really track every single, every single thing that they can to try and better understand what's happening. I look forward to the the new slideshow from my niece that is going to give me all of this data in in probably PowerPoint form, I assume. Um, <laughs> so I have to ask, and you don't have to answer. Yes. But AI and yes. specifically like LLM driven technology like ChatGPT, Google mm -hmm. Bard, that have been disrupting the tech industry in so so many like interesting ways. But when I talk to colleagues like yourself who are still in the classroom, it seems that you are dealing with a, like a level of disruption that the the rest of us are maybe not having having to deal with. I, like we've we have mutual colleagues who've been like I have had to deal with so many honor honor code violations or honor committee meetings just this past spring semester. Um, how have you seen this play out in your classes? Yeah, so I take my students' privacy very seriously, so I won't give any specific examples of you know, instances that I've seen. But I will say that, yes, this has definitely been a thing. Um, what we've been kind of encountering in the academic space is we are in a transitional period between these tools being introduced and effective strategies being in place for how to work with or handle these tools. And so we're in this kind of no man's land of trying to figure it out the best we can as we go. And there are some people who are um, you know, on the side of we can't touch it at all, we can't interact with it at all. And there are some people who are on the we've got to learn to work with it uh, kind of thing. Um, and so, so yeah, I have definitely had a few students submit things in recent semesters that I have had reason to think were written by or were predominantly written by something like ChatGPT. Um, and one of the things that I have found most interesting about it is that it's rarely for me the issue of kind of quote unquote quality um, in terms of like, they're generally well-written. Sometimes they make up their sources and sometimes the things they say aren't true, but it's generally, you know, they're easy to read. They're fairly convincing they sound nothing like my students. And that is one of the things that like I, I notice is that we are definitely seeing when I see them, part of what stands out to me is this is not the student I've been talking to all semester. This is not the student whose work I've been reading all semester. Not because they aren't capable of writing really well thought out things and really clean writing, quote unquote, 
but just because it doesn't have the voice, it doesn't have the personality. Um, and so, you know, I, I am someone who I tend to, you know, like I said, I study digital and uh, digital media. I tend to be like, I try not to approach it from a perspective of assuming that all technology changes are going to be bad, right? I try to kind of come at it from, well, what is this doing? What is that? I will say I've been hesitant to engage with something like chat GPT myself, um, largely because there have been so many ethical concerns about how the data has been obtained for these various models that I find myself reluctant for now to provide them with more data to work off of. Um, but that being said, I do think that I have seen a lot of remarkably smart people bringing them into the classroom in ways of saying, okay, let's use this. Let's talk about it. Like, and having students generate responses and look at them and actually see, this is maybe not as good as I could have done, right? And, and to find the flaws and the problems and to understand it. Um, and so I think that right now we are definitely in a, like I said, a transitional space. Um, it's something where, you know, and we, we've been in that space for a long time. Um, I think that, in, you know, it, We've been in this space in different ways in the past um, that, you know, the pandemic really forced a lot of people to start using online learning management systems that had never used them before. And that's a good thing. Um, but it also means that, like, I think some faculty who are still learning how to deal with that are now kind of grappling with this question of what do we do about um, something like ChatGPT when it shows up in our classroom. Here is an avalanche to, to yeah. really fall on top of your existing concerns about dealing with your new um, LMS. Yeah. And I have seen a lot of conversation around whether this means we're going to start kind of, I don't, I don't want to use the word regressing because I don't think that that's inherently what it is. Um, but if we're going to see a return to more in-class writing of sit down with your pen and paper and do this in front of me so that I know you did it, which has its pros, but it also has its cons. There's a lot of questions to be had there about accessibility and yes. you know how much that shuts down tools that students need to succeed. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. Um, you know, I, I think that in my experience thus far, a lot of the students who go to those tools rather than trying to write for themselves are not necessarily doing it because they're convinced they can get away with it, but for the same reason that students do anything that violates any sort of honor code, which is they're tired, they're exhausted, they have other things in their life. and They're working free jobs and they have to get their... their um, this you know, seems, yeah, this seems like the thing that can save them time. And that's not necessarily an excuse and it's not always great, but it is a reality, right? Um, you know, we see a lot of uh, articles. There was one recently that, you know, like to make fun of students whose grandparents suddenly die during the last week of the semester. And it's like, well, yeah, but sometimes their grandparents do die. They are at that age where that is a thing that happens. And also if they are lying to you about it, that means there's bigger problems at hand than the lie itself. Um, and I think that that's kind of where I am with a lot of the chat GPT stuff. Um, most of my students want to do the work and they want to learn and they want to do it themselves. 
And if they find they can't or don't, it's a question for me to explore as well as as much as it is uh, a reason to punish them. That all makes sense. And I am completely unsurprised that you bring that much empathy to your to your classroom and to your your like your teaching practices. And also, I I have done so much schooling. Like I hope I never go back to school, but the okay. fact that I I won't be in a classroom having to handwrite something and that some poor professor is going to have to try to read my handwriting is is a great, great relief. This is to me. Listen, I there's a reason that online writing is easier and that ability to read it is not nothing um and it's it's actually really interesting too because there are other ways that you see those tools that we use show up even outside of instances where they like shouldn't use them quote unquote um Mm -hmm. because you know i one of the things i have noticed so much in the last five years or so is that a lot of students will leave a space between a word and the punctuation that they're using so they'll end a sentence and there will be a space and then there will be a period or a comma in particular. Um, and that's such an in indication of the technology they're using to write the thing um, of, you know, the way that those things get put in. And some students will do, you know, will dictate and that plays a role in it. Some of them, you know, don't have the settings on to you know have it automatically fix it and all these different things. And it's not, you know, it, it's just, it's such an interesting thing to be able to have been in this long enough to see the different trends and changes in student writing as not just a failure of education or a failure of the student, but as a change in technology and what that means for our writing processes. And I think that that's what we see with ChatGPT, right? That that is going to be another one of these technologies that is going to change these conversations. It's going to change how students write. And I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what that's going to look like. You know, there are, I've seen compelling arguments for both. We have to just make it one of the tools that we use in all of our steps. And also these systems are going to have a major collapse in the next few years and we won't have to worry about them anymore. I've seen both arguments made compellingly and I don't know, I'm not the expert. And so I'm kind of in a sit back and wait and see. And in the meantime, give my students the benefit of the doubt whenever I can and think about what I need to be changing to make it work. So bringing things back to Taylor Swift, because this is the Taylor Swift episode, but I I feel like thinking about, um, especially that her errors tour as being like, okay, looking back at all the different kind of phases. And we just talked about like evolution of technologies and even um, the current, like she's she's touring and performing. She's putting out like re-releases with new stuff, and she's putting out just like all that kind of like collage or bricolage or a combination of things. Um, you know, that's just feel very. It, it definitely fits with my uh, medieval medievalism studies, but also it, it definitely feels very kind of tech industry. In closing, final question: Do yeah. you have a favorite era? The problem is, I have memories with each of them. And so it's hard to necessarily pick one specifically. Um, And I think what I will say is that I think my favorite like era or album is different than my favorites in general. Um, But Lover is something that is is very significant to me because, um, you know, I 
it came out right as I bought my first house here, right as I was starting this job. And so I have such distinct memories of like, I would have it playing as I was like painting my house and doing all these different things. And so it's one where um, I think there are songs I love better. Like I think, um, you know, like the lakes and Ivy on some of her on folklore and evermore are remarkable tour, you know, kind of tour de force songs that really show who she is as a songwriter. But there's something so specific about Lover to me and, you know, kind of who I was when that album was coming out, um, that it's always going to be a special one for me. Well, I'm, I'm not surprised, but impressed that you had an answer to that question because like, I don't know if I do like, but, but, but do well, what you did. Not everyone has to. And some people will True. find their errors as time goes on. It's, it's, and one of the things that I always tell my students too, is like, I, I do not labor under the delusion, uh, under the delusion that all of my students will walk away loving Taylor Swift. Right. Um, no artist is for everybody. Um, but I do think that most of them walk away finding her a little bit more interesting than they maybe previously gave her credit for. And I think that that is a fair point to have around her that you don't have to like her music. Um, you don't even have to like her. She's certainly done many a problematic thing over the years. Um, but as a figure in the center of pop culture and technology and intellectual property and music, she's kind of fascinating. Um, and that's, that's what's fun about it. No, no arguments from the analyst on the call at all for that. Uh, well, Casey, this has been great. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining me today. For fun. Anytime. Yeah. Never need that. A, a Taylor Swift episode to sequel. Let me know. We'll, we'll see. Like this may have to be a series within a series. Um, but we're at time. And with that, the docs are out. <laughs>